The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you tonight. So the last several weeks I've been talking about a more direct way of practicing in daily life and this is just how it is with the, I think more generally the spiritual path, but for sure the Buddhist path. There's a, a, a phrase or a, not a phrase, but a term in Buddhism, upaya, um, which means skillful means. And there are many different skillful means. And some are more like a direct turning of the mind, immediate turning of the mind. And some skillful means, ways of practicing, are more gradual. They're uh, a, a kind of uh, wearing down, for example, uprooting and wearing down of certain habits and the cultivation of other habits. That's a more gradual kind of training that we engage in. But even though it's good to engage in those kinds of trainings that are gradual, it's also good to practice directly turning the mind. <clears throat> not to feel like, oh, I'll get free, I'll be free, I'll be happy after this very long and difficult process of changing my habit energy. So right now I can't be happy, I can't be free because I'm not there yet, which is can be a very debilitating belief to think that somehow I'm currently bad and it isn't until I become good that I'll be happy. So uh, this really corresponds in a way to the first part of the Eightfold Path that's about wisdom or view or intention. So where the mind can very, uh, in any moment, can go and or maybe it gradually arose and at first we said, yeah, okay, okay. And then at some point we said, no, this is too much. This is not okay. And so the first step is really to hold out that no matter what can arise in our lives, so even if our life is going pretty smoothly, then we can use other people's lives that have some difficulty. And we can say, you know, I may not know how to practice with this. I may not know how to open to this person's suffering or to my own suffering. but there is a way to practice. So to keep that possibility, there is a way to practice with this. Which means the basic formula in Buddhism, the basic way of practice, is to open to what we're not yet capable of opening, or to see what we're not yet seeing, to see clearly what we're not yet seeing clearly. That's the basic technology, spiritual technology in Buddhism. And there are many different rifts on that, angles on that. So we want to, like, if you want to take this as a theme, which is one of the nice things about having a, a Dharma talk or a talk on practice every so often, is it just gives us another angle on how to practice in daily life, how to practice when we're doing our sitting practice. So for a particular angle, then, we can be on the lookout for moments when the mind in one way or another justifies, no, not this. So the opposite, remember tonight in the guided sit, I suggested you could use the mantra, yes. But not just in your sit, but during your life, your daily life. You can just walk around and when you bump into your next experience, you can just practice saying yes. Yes, this is how it is. Yes, I'm willing to open. Now, if we are, if we open and then react, then we can say yes to the reaction. So there's no no way to fail with this practice, because even if you're kind of caught in this sort of avalanche of reactions, like you're reacting and then reacting to the reaction and then reacting to the reaction of the reaction, <laughs> even then it's possible to say yes, like sliding down a slippery well right into hell. We can even say yes to that, because that's sometimes what it's like for us, right? When we have enough awareness, 
often we don't realize when we're sliding into hell. We're too busy scratching, trying to get some grip somewhere. But sometimes we're aware that nothing's working. And we can even say yes to that. Yes. And, and it's amazing how freeing that is. Like I'm at the state of, of my professional life running Common Ground, where every day now, things fall through my fingers. Like version, non-greed, and non-delusion. And so this is just the, the definition of a loving heart, a wise and loving heart. And in this way of talking about practice, it's important to understand that wisdom, you know, the way into wisdom, compassion is just like going towards wisdom through the back door. But you could say the same thing in the other direction, you know, that the way to compassion is through wisdom. You can go in the back door of compassion, which is to be wise, to see clearly, and you end up being compassionate. So wisdom and compassion in a Buddhist sense are not two different things. They're two flavors of the same thing. Another way of thinking about this is uh, wisdom is the sort of like sometimes the mind is thought of as both still and active. And so wisdom is the still side of a, of a free mind, and compassion is the active side of a free mind. Another way that in the Tibetan formulation, they talk about the nature of the mind being luminous, full of this quality of awareness or knowing, empty of self, and unstoppable compassionate action. So this is the essential nature of the mind when it's not obscured by the three unwholesome roots, greed, aversion, and delusion. Then what, what we're left with, you know, you could say, well, imagining what a fully enlightened being might be like. In those moments when we're fully enlightened, there would be the luminosity, so the, the quality of things being known. There would be this distinct feeling of no center. So the, the experience of things being known doesn't have a center to it. It's just things being known without a center. And we'll find the body-mind unstoppably being compassionate, just acting in a loving, compassionate way. Because what would be in the way of that? The only thing can, that can be in the way is, uh, is self-centeredness. So the, the key principle tonight to start to weave into our daily life and, our, and also, of course, our sitting practice, our formal practice, but specifically our daily life, or maybe more importantly, our daily life practice, is uh, when talking about compassion, which is the, the flavor of love I want to talk about tonight, as a direct way of, toward freedom. So not compassion because we should be compassionate because our mother told us to be compassionate, or our priest or rabbi told us to be compassionate. But be compassionate because it's the inevitable fruit of a free of freedom. So understanding what compassionate a compassionate life looks like means we're kind of understanding what freedom looks like, which is great. It's kind of nice how that works. That What's good for the world is also good. It's good for everybody, including ourselves. When we come into alignment with a compassionate heart, everybody gets taken care of. It's not like I become the great martyr, victim. I'm so compassionate for you. Maybe someday I'll get my just reward. It's not like that. It's not meant to be like that. So. One of the great lines I think that is really helpful with working with compassion is from uh, Sharon Salzberg's, I think it's in this book anyway, she said it somewhere, if not in this book. This is a book I mentioned last week, which is a really good resource for learning a lot more about our heart and its capacity for love. It's called Loving Kindness, A Revolutionary Art of Happiness by, again, Sharon Salzberg. And she has this phrase there, it goes something like this. It's not that suffering itself is redemptive. There's nothing redemptive about 
having a life filled with suffering. So, you know, we can imagine all the people suffering in, in Burma or in China now or anywhere, that people who are physically, socially oppressed. The oppression itself, the illness itself, is not transforming. It's not redemptive. But there is something about suffering that's redemptive, and that's the opening to suffering. That's, what's trans- that's what transforms the heart. And I started talking about this last week in terms of flipping, like how we flip from, a flick, from an afflicted state of mind to an unafflicted state of mind. And when we open the suffering, see that that's counter the instincts of the ego. <coughs> it's not the ego's habit to open to what's difficult on any level. Even something simple like stubbing your toe or if it's a little too cool or a little too hot, the ego's reactive tendency is to resist, to push away or distract itself, deny what's difficult. So you see, opening to what's difficult, whether it's our own suffering or the suffering of another, opening to it is a step a step beyond the ego's uh, control, the ego's influence. This is why it's so redemptive, it's so freeing to cultivate compassion, to open our heart. And especially those places of our lives, in our lives, where we're kind of saying, no, I can't take this anymore, this is too much. I mean, how many times did that arise? Today even, but, you know, when we think back, over difficult stretches in our lives where something arose, as things do, that we didn't expect, and or maybe it gradually arose, and at first we said, yeah, okay, okay, and then at some point we said, no, this is too much, this is not okay. And so the first step is really to hold out that no matter what can arise in our lives. So even if our life is going pretty smoothly, then we can use other people's lives that have some difficulty. And we can say, you know, I may not know how to practice with this. I may not know how to open to this person's suffering or to my own suffering. But there is a way to practice. So to keep that possibility, there is a way to practice with this which means the basic formula in Buddhism, the basic way of practice, is to open to what we're not yet capable of opening, or to see what we're not yet seeing, to see clearly what we're not yet seeing clearly. That's the basic technology, spiritual technology in Buddhism. And there are many different rifts on that, angles on that. So we want to like if you want to take this as a theme, which is one of the nice things about having a, a Dharma talk or a talk on practice every so often, is it just gives us another angle on how to practice in daily life, how to practice when we're doing our sitting practice. So for a particular angle then, we can be on the lookout for moments when the mind in one way or another justifies, no, not this. So the opposite, remember tonight in the guided said I suggested you could use the mantra yes. Well, not just in your sit, but during your life, your daily life. You can just walk around and when you bump into your next experience, you can just practice saying yes. Yes, this is how it is. Yes, I'm willing to open. Now, if we, are, if we open and then react, then we can say yes to the reaction. So there's no fa- no way to fail with this practice. Because even if you're kind of caught in this sort of avalanche of reactions, like you're reacting and then reacting to the reaction and then reacting to the reaction of the reaction, <laughs> even then it's possible to say yes. Like sliding down a slippery well right into hell. We can even say yes to that. Because that's sometimes what it's like for us, right? When we have enough awareness, often we don't realize when we're sliding into hell or too busy scratching, trying to get some grip somewhere. 
But sometimes we're aware that nothing's working. And we can even say yes to that. Yes. And and it's amazing how freeing that is. Like I'm at the state of, of my professional life running Common Ground where every day now things fall through my fingers. Like emails that, emails that were written a while back didn't get answered, you know, and things that needed to be done a long time ago haven't been done. And... Uh, it's really, for a control freak, <laughs> it's a very difficult, painful experience when I take it personally, when I, I allow, when I get identified with the response, no, this is not okay. When I believe that thought, no, this is not okay, then my life becomes hell. And but <laughs> when I can laugh and say yes to the life that is the way that it is, you know, to the conditions as they actually are, then it's a lot easier. And see, this is a real step in freedom. We learn so much in these difficult moments. Now, it's nice when our practice is all ease and calm and light bubbly sensations in the body, you know, and the buoyant, radiant heart that just loves the green and loves the sound of traffic and loves the birds and, and when someone sniffles next to them and they're sick, their heart just fills with compassion. May you get well. May you never be sick again. <laughs> so when, when it's that way, it's great to practice in those conditions when the mind is like that. But that's, at least for me, it's not often the way my mind is. So then... Then we learn this other kind of practice, which is opening to what's difficult. And it's like you can even uh, create a, a formal practice where when you breathe in, you're connecting to what's difficult, either in your own life or what's going on around you and the people you know, the people you know of. It's like breathing in the difficulty. Oh, I see that you're suffering. Oh, I realize that I'm suffering. So we breathe in. The inhalation is like a willingness to be sensitive to what's not okay, a willingness to be sensitive to what's difficult. Whether it's just the uneasiness in the body, a restlessness in the body, or pain in the back, or or something more profound like, uh, you know, our daughter being sick or being upset or all the various tragedies that do regularly happen in life. So we practice breathing in, to saying yes, yes to being sensitive, yes to being touched by that pain, whether it's our pain or somebody else's. And that's profound enough, just to say yes to it. But just to make sure that we're not saying yes and freezing up, which is what our tendency is, like especially when we've been delivered this message that we should be compassionate, then we develop some kind of callousness in order to pretend to be uh, compassionate. Like, yes, 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 this is how it is. But we're not really letting it in. So the next step, after we breathe it in, we want to exhale, we want to give something away. That way we know we're not in a frozen state. So generally that's a generous wish or... If we're out there in the world, if we're not just sitting in our practice, then we respond to the suffering, or our suffering, or somebody else's suffering in some way. So, you know, we read the New York Times, or listen to whatever you listen to, you breathe in, oh my God. You know, like I noticed in the New York Times, on the website at least, they had a little kid. I mean, it's just amazing how potent that picture is. And maybe some of you saw it, like four or five-year-old child in China, uh, just saw her face with a bunch of dust on it. Looks like she's alive under a bunch of rubble, you know. And so can you, can we just breathe that in? Yes, this is how it is. And then instead of like not responding, finding a way to respond, and I'm not saying, you know, you get on the phone and or send money even, although that would be fine. But... The mind 
its deep tendency is to freeze up when it sees something that it can't understand. How can we allow that to be? How can we allow innocent children to be trapped under buildings and sit there for days? We can't really. It can't. It can't be. We can't explain that. But the mind, will, the the ego, <clears throat> will want an explanation. But we want to breathe in, let the heart be touched, and the only thing that will freeze up the heart is if we come, if we define it in some way. So we we practice just responding, whatever that is. We can cry. We can send money. We can call somebody and say, what can we do? We can see that thing, you know, whatever it is, 20,000 miles away, and then we can respond with to something right in our neighborhood. <clears throat> or go pick up our kid and take care of her or him. So we don't need a fixed response. We don't need to believe there's a fixed response. But just to... to Bring the compassion into action. Remember what I said earlier that compassion really is the active side of wisdom. Because as long as we're alive, we're doing things. We're always doing things. Even sitting meditation is a doing. Everything is a doing. So we just let whatever we do... See, it isn't so much what we do, but that what we do is the compassion, is the... Is the uh, movement of the heart. So the heart moves. We let, we breathe in. We let the heart be touched by what's true in the moment, and then the exhalation is our response, our activity in the world, and we just let that come from the opposite of the three unwholesome roots. So it just naturally will flow when we're when we allow our heart to be touched, to be real with what's happening. Then. Our response will be free. It will be non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion. In other words, it will be compassion or love, the activity of love. So when you're doing your formal sit, you can even do this formally. This is a, a wonderful practice. And with the different, what we call Brahma-Viharas, the divine abodes, the cultivation of love and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity, these different qualities of the heart, it's really okay to be creative in how you find a way to generate, to support this uh, way of being, this way of freedom, really. So traditionally with compassion, it has those two parts. Like if you're going to put a phrase to it, the first part of the phrase is recognizing the suffering, being sensitive to the suffering. And the second part of the phrase is giving something away. I care about your suffering. I mean, it could be that simple. I care about this suffering if it's our own. Or I care about your suffering. May you be free. Or may you be at ease with things as they are. Or whatever phrase for you is that generous, that giving something away. So even when we're sitting, even when we're thousands of miles away, we can do something. We can breathe in and be touched by what's true, and we can exhale and give our good wishes away, give our good heart away, give our compassion away. And it has a real effect on our heart, and I believe goes beyond just how it affects our own heart. If we try to go right to the giving away, it's it's not doesn't work either. So we have to be touched and then give. And there's this, you know, this is just one of those basic principles in life of ebb and flow, in and out. And it works with compassion, too. A little bit later, in a few weeks, I'll talk more about appreciative joy, and we can begin working with that theme. But it's the same thing. In order to give, to be joyful, we have to be touched by what's beautiful. We have to see what's beautiful in our lives, in our life, or in those around us or just in nature, just in the conditions. So we breathe in, we get touched by beauty, and then we give beauty out. May, you know, whatever, however that joy, that exhale of joy looks like in our lives in the moment. 
And in this way, compassion or any of these qualities of love, but tonight we're talking about compassion, is a, a really powerful protector in our life. So it's not just, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's a, it's a direct turning toward freedom, but it really it does this other part of practice that I mentioned earlier tonight about this gradual cultivation. It, it, there is a burning to compassion practice because when we're practicing compassion, um, we're sort of not allowing the heart, the mind, to act in its habitual way, which is to freeze up, to close down, to try to fix not because we care, but because we're afraid. So to allow the heart in every moment to be touched and then to give, to participate. To do that is uh, it's sort of burning away the old habits. So not only are we immediately more free in that moment when we're compassionate, we're less frozen, we're more free, we're finding a way to be with life as it is, which, you know, is often difficult, but we're also uprooting all of the habits of aversion and all the habits of greed and all the habits of delusion, not seeing things clearly. So it, it has this purification, you know, it purifies the heart. The more The more moments we have where we're willing to be touched by what's difficult and then to generously respond in some way in that moment. Sharon Salzberg, in in her chapter in that book on compassion, says, the first step in developing true compassion is being able to recognize, to open to, and to acknowledge that pain and sorrow exist Everywhere, absolutely everywhere, in one way or another, beings are suffering. Some suffering is intense and terrible, some is quiet and small. So, even when we can't practice this, one of the things we can practice is we can, when we're not a, we can't, we don't have the clarity to do what I'm suggesting where we breathe in what's difficult, we touch, allow it to touch the heart, and then we respond freely. When we can't do that, what we can notice is this very deep habit of wanting to escape suffering, wanting to explain it away. I'm too busy. My life's too overwhelming. Well, that may be true, but then our life being overwhelming that's suffering. So if we can't open to the tragedy in Miramar or the tragedy in China, then maybe we can open to the tragedy or the catastrophe of our own life, the messiness of our own life. Maybe we can maybe that's even though relatively speaking it's smaller, because of its proximity, it's bigger. So this is the suffering we're being invited to open to. So what we can first see, what the easy thing to see first is our efforts to escape suffering. And there, another wonderful line I like from a teacher, there is an end, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's the, the gist of his, his sentence is something like, uh, there is no escape from suffering. There is an end to it, but escaping suffering isn't the end of suffering. And, you know, in Buddhism, escaping suffering is the cause for suffering. Trying to get out of suffering is futile and just creates suffering. Trying to be immune from suffering, trying to be callous to suffering is suffering. And even if somehow, through some good fortune and competence, We have some uh, relative immunity from suffering, you know. We're like in that corner of the world where nothing bad is happening. And our body, you know, is at its peak of health. 
and everybody we're around is beautiful and loving, even then there is the suffering of of feeling like uh, I don't want this to change. I don't want anybody to mess with my little heaven realm. And we feel threatened. Even if we don't see any danger on the horizon, we can imagine danger. I was was on a little short little retreat. Um, I left Monday afternoon and came back early this morning over at Holy Spirit. It's a place about 90 miles away on Lake Elysian. It's a nice place. And they've got this nice woods. And uh, last night I was taking a walk right at dusk. And I didn't bring my flashlight with me. And it's a nice kind of heavy woods in, in some parts. And, and I was just walking. And, you know, there are no dangerous animals there. I know this. <laughs> but the thought just arose in my mind. You know, here he was. It was like as an ideal setting as I'm likely to have for a while. And, and there, you know, even in that ideal setting, the mind is it's like, you know, the, that, that theme in the movie Jaws. It's like, boom, 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 boom. It's like the mind does that equivalent where it's, it's like, it doesn't even know what the danger is, but it just assumes there's got to be a danger. And it, if it isn't the mountain lion, which, you know, do exist in Minnesota, it's the dreaded ticks that are out. <laughs> <laughs> or something. I, I had an experience last time I was there, not this time, where I was just standing there in the middle of the woods, and this deer came right up to me. I mean, like, just 15, 20 feet away. Sort of, you know how they do, where they kind of stamp on the ground like, hey, get out of my way. <laughs> and, and it was kind of like, uh, here's a little, I, I noticed fear came up, like, Oh, this is this animal what doesn't want me to be here. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I had the thought that I've never heard of a deer attacking someone. <laughs> but you imagine, the mind imagines. So even if we have that, that perfect experience, suffering is there. It's everywhere. And so at least in moments, this is going to be a long habit uh, to undo, that at least in moments we can remember that freedom from suffering doesn't come by escaping suffering, escaping what's difficult. That's not the route. Now, I know all of us, including myself, we're going to spend time doing things to get away from suffering, to get away from what's difficult. You know, we're going to shut the window when it's too cold, and we're going to open it when it's too hot, and we're going to fix the house when it leaks and we're going to put money in the bank for retirement. We're going to do things like that. And so we're kind of uh, sort of taking care of things on a relative level. Some of you know about Nasiruddin, a Sufi mystic kind of a crazy guy. He's more of a legendary than a historic figure from Sufism, this mystical side of Islam. And there's one story of Nasiruddin is like, uh, um, how does it go? Um, Oh, yeah, trust in Allah, but tie your camel to the post or something like that. (laughs) It's like you trust in the divine, but you still tie your horse or your camel. You don't just let it wander around or get lost. And so, but in moments then we want to practice this more radical turning. Remember, I'm not talking with these teachings on love, I'm not talking about the gradual path. I'm really talking about a direct experience of freedom, an immediate experience of freedom, when the heart opens to love. And so here, we're, we're letting go for a period of time in order to gain confidence in this approach. We're letting go of escaping suffering. That that's not my basic life strategy right now to escape suffering, to somehow create some place where there won't be suffering. Instead, my approach is to open, to let life in, to be touched by how it is. And we're discovering another way of taking care of ourselves, a much more profound and immediate way of taking care of ourselves. So that the end of suffering isn't by escaping, the end of suffering is by opening or 
dropping our habits of defense. Here's another quote from Sharon's chapter. Suffering is an intrinsic part of life and will certainly not disappear from the lives of beings, no matter how earnestly we wish it, wish for it to. What we are doing in the compassion meditation is purifying and transforming our relationship to suffering, whether it is our own or that of others. Being able to acknowledge suffering, open to it, and respond to it with a tenderness of heart allows us to join with all beings and to realize that we are never alone. So maybe I'll just end with this this basic point. I remember in my um, late teens and early 20s when I started having more serious relationships and uh, just feeling like, uh, in a ver- being really honest with myself, I didn't have a clue what love was. Like, of course, we hear about love all over over the place in the songs, and you know, you're supposed to love your partner, and um, you know, I, I felt attraction. I knew what attraction was. I, I knew what friendliness was, but I didn't know what love meant. It just kind of felt like this big unknown, and my heart literally felt like a big unknown, like. Who knows? Who knows what that is? And then, you know, just as the years went by and I began practicing in my early 20s, and, you know, practicing just means we're being, we're doing what we can to be more sensitive. That's what meditation practices or any spiritual practice. It's just doing whatever we can to be more sensitive. So then I got more sensitive to this heart that didn't sort of feel alive. And I used to think, oh my God, this is a huge problem. I even, like, I used to warn my girlfriends. <laughs> you know, I, I really want to be with you, but I don't know what love is. <laughs> and I didn't know what, like, uh, was expected. Like, what does that mean that we're going to be intimate partners, that we're going to be, you know, committed or loving toward one another? Like that song in a chorus line. I do remember that song where the woman thinks, I felt nothing. I can't remember all the lyrics. But she's talking about a a drama coach or something like that. It's teaching her how to act and asking her to sort of touch what's underneath and express it. And she felt nothing. And that's kind of how I felt. But over the years, instead of seeing that as a problem, I realized very slowly with a lot of... um, you know, after a lot of judgment and confusion, I realized I could care about that numbness in my heart. I could really care about it. Now, it's sort of like, it's sort of almost not fair, right? Because my heart defended itself with very strong numbness. But the thing is, there's no way to stop, like, this is the, the, the essential nature of the heart is to love. So no matter the barrier, because because the source of love isn't coming from a particular place, you just step you just like step to the side and you go, Oh, Mark's heart is all numb. It's all frozen. I really care about him. That's not the numb heart anymore, is it? And so this is this is like the great uh, movement of love. It's like there's never a situation that can't be a cause for the loving heart to express itself. It just can't be. But if we think this is the one situation <laughs> that, you know, where love can't arise, where love doesn't make sense, well, as long as we believe that thought, then it's true. Love will not arise. But, you know, eventually if we just stop believing our thoughts and instead let the heart know, do what it knows to do, it will start to care about what's painful. So the trick is to actually let the heart be touched, to feel the pain of whatever it is that's difficult, whatever it is that's not working in our lives or around us. 
and this is, I think I, I, I made this point last week too, that's really the key. If we can take in a little bit more pain than we were willing to take in before, then the heart will respond to it. If we believe the thought that I can't let this in, I can't feel this, I can't acknowledge this, this is too much, this doesn't make sense, then in a way what we're saying is we believe the thought that love is weak, love is not capable. And then we live inside that box. So this would be nice to hear from people about this point about, or anything from the talk tonight. You know, situations in your own life where you bumped it up against some wall and how maybe you eventually found a way to let it in, to begin to work with it with openness, sensitivity, and then the heart's response to that openness, that sensitivity. And also at times there are places where you haven't yet been able to do that, but maybe you can make a public statement. Yes, I haven't been able to do it, but I now public, publicly acknowledge it's possible, even though I don't know how. <laughs> so you can make that statement too. Or any questions that you might have about the talk tonight. So what comes to mind? beautiful summation because remember one of the things I said at the beginning of the relationship between wisdom and compassion because some people hearing that woman her words you know that who knows how they got here why they're here all we know is that they're here I'm just paraphrasing you a little that that's really the wisdom view the wisdom view is not letting the mind get caught up in the story, but just responding. If we, if we need to define the situation, then we start creating an entanglement that either our work there will become a kind of violence. I mean, it may be subtle, but it, it's like that we're shooting them. You know, this shouldn't be this way, or you shouldn't be this way. or we just uh, can't be there. We, it will be too intense and we'll have to leave. So in order to be sensitive to the suffering in the world, wisdom has to de develop in parallel with the compassionate action. You can't really have true compassionate action without the wisdom. And you can't really have wisdom without this compassionate action. So, I mean, they can get out of balance a little, but then things things have a way of correcting that if we're if we're really uh, if we understand kind of the basics of spiritual life the path that sort of balance will come it will come back into balance thanks for sharing that good story other comments people have Key is just to find what you can turn to, what you can open to, 
maybe not the whole, maybe not like the, the passing of your partner, but maybe opening to your own grief and the pain in your heart without going to, to that loss directly, but just your own pain right now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Greg? Yeah, um, I've been through a pretty tough experience with a family member, and uh, last night I was having one of those moments where I just couldn't take it anymore. And instead I just spent time with another individual and just started talking to them about their life. Just, I got interested in what Taking an interest in this other person's life, the good and the bad, took me out of my focusing or being stuck on what was happening in my life, and it was I found relief in that. Yeah. These basic things that people stumble on and do, we can really then become conscious of, oh yeah, this is a strategy that really works whether it's just conversation or going out and helping somebody, you know, they, it really changes our mind. Because when we're, when we're in that box, I can't take this anymore, then that box gets very tight and very heavy very quickly. So it's really nice to have some things already established in our lives that we can just do, like we're part of this church and we can just go help over here, or we can go see this friend over here, or we can you know, go build a treehouse for my kid, or we can do something that takes us out of the story that doesn't have an answer in the way that we're looking for it. Other thoughts people have? to some experience or no 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 to some phenomenon can you do you have an example Dudar? let's say um, civil disobedience Maybe in a social context. Maybe there's a need to say no. Mm-hmm. Although the experience may be oppressive, can we continue to say yes to it? Yeah. Well, see, we're not. All we're doing is saying yes to the way it is in this moment. So yes to the oppression, yes to the confusion, yes to the anger that's building, yes. So we're just sort of receiving being touched, and then comes the compassionate action, whatever that might look like. It may be civil disobedience. Who knows what it will be? We're not saying, we're just uh, first allowing ourselves to be touched. So like, you know, if people are concerned about global warming, it's really important to be touched by something that's out of our control, seemingly out of our control and something that doesn't seem easily defined, like we don't even really understand the whole dimension of, the, of what's going on. To kind of breathe in the, the, you know, that we can't really get our hands, our minds around what's going on, to let that in, and to let our response come from there. Because otherwise, what we, what we tend to do is not let it in, because it's, it's too confusing to let in, and nobody likes to be confused what people would like is a really set answer. And so then if we don't let it in completely, then our response is very defined, you know, often in terms of good and bad. And when we define things in good and bad, then the other side defines us in other things in terms of good and bad. And then we have conflict. 
and things may not get done as well. So we can practice really being touched and then respond. And actually it allows, it gives us more strength because our response isn't so fragile. We're actually feeling fed by responding. It's not like a way to respond. We're actually being carried. Our, our compassionate response is sort of the natural. You could, I think you could even say effortless response, even if it's really intense, like civil disobedience. So in that way, it won't be construed as a negative response? No, I don't think so. I mean, it could be. It just depends where it's coming from. You know, if it's really coming from uh, unwillingness to see what's true in that moment, then for at least that person's heart, it will have a negative effect. But uh, it doesn't have to. I mean, so much of the change in the world has come from people breathing in and being touched by what's true, and then the response is so much deeper, more authentic, because they've really been touched by what's true. So Martin Luther King has some great lines about exactly about this, about really letting the movement, the civil rights movement, come from the sort of awareness of oppression. It, not from hate, but from love. The love of having really touched, been touched by how unworkable, how wrong this is. And uh, if they didn't really let it in, it would have come from hate, you know, hate toward the oppressors. But uh, I'm sure it did at times, but it, it, he seemed like he really understood that principle. There's a couple minutes left, if anybody else has a closing thought for the group. Mary. Could you just differentiate between responding and reacting? Yeah, well, reacting is a habitual response. So it's like, uh, you know, stimulus A arises and reaction B follows. And we're often like that in life, where we're just acting habitually, react reactively. And a response is just the word we use when, I mean, I'm not saying it's this way actually in the English language, but the way that it's used in Buddhist circles is we, we respond when we are present with conditions as they are, and then what arises from that moment of being present is a response that includes having seen clearly, having received what's true. So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.